Let's get this party started. What's going on, nerds? How's everybody feeling tonight? Are we ready to uh, be engaged and have some big brains in a fun and engaging way today? All right, let's get this party started. So, Nerd Night. Boom, this is our beautiful logo of Garden of the Gods. And we have our tagline, which is be there and be square. But we've also had some alternative taglines as well. So, by show of hands... How many of you have cable? We have one. I'm going to point you out with a pointer. One. So back in like the 90s and 2000s, because Nerd Night's been around for almost 30 years, and back then they used to say that Nerd Night was kind of like the Discovery Channel with beer. But since none of you have cable anymore, except you, people don't really have the Discovery Channel. So now the newest tagline is like boozy TED Talks. So we're here to learn, drink, and have a good time together. So my name is Flip Awesome Aguilera. Yes, my middle name literally is awesome. It's something I have to try to live up to every single day. It's a responsibility. And this is my beautiful bride over here, Maritza, and we are your Nerd Night bosses. This is us in Miami, the day that I asked her to marry me in Nerd Night Miami. So, yeah. So Nerd Night is in over 100 cities all over the world. So if you're traveling and you want to connect with other nerdy people and drink things from other exotic places, go find a nerd night somewhere in one of these places and uh, go nerd out and have a good time. So by show of hands, how many of you are here for the first time? Woo! All right. We love new nerds. I know what you first-timers are thinking. You're all thinking, if I had to in front of a group of smart, drunk people, what would I present on? How many of you were thinking that? Okay, we have one, two, yes. So if you would like to present a Nerd Night, shoot us an email at nerdnightcos at gmail.com or just tap me or Maritza on the shoulder and we'll be happy to get you on the Nerd Night stage. You can also follow, like, review, and share us on the Facebook and the Gram. And every once in a while, I think we're on TikTok, but... That's for my kids, not for me. <laughs> it's getting there. You can also check out our website, which we never put anything up. But this thing, actually, there is something cool on the website. And this is the video of the day that I asked her to marry me. So you could check that out. We also do another awesome community building event that's actually going to be this Monday. And that one is called Memoirs, True Stories, Unfiltered. So if you'd like to hear three people from our community tell real, raw stories about their life, that's connected to a theme of the month, and this month's theme is Season's Greetings. Come to Memoirs on Monday. It's another awesome event. And let's put our hands together for our amazing host venue, Kawadi. Thank you guys for letting us nerd out here every month. We really appreciate you. And keep your hands going to clap for you, Colorado Springs, because without you, there would be nothing cool for us to be on this stage learning about. So tonight, what are we going to nerd out about? So presentation number one is, say it with me, I love soil. I know somebody who loves soil over here. She loves soil for sure. And now you two need to connect and be super soil lovers together. And then, uh, so that is going to be by Abigail Clapp. Presentation number two is Trivia and Trends, Your Energy Systems by our very own Colorado Springs Utilities. Don't throw your bills on the stage asking them why they got more expensive. Try to under They're going to try to make us understand why that's happening. 
And presentation number three is, I don't even know if that's the right title, but we're, what's the title? Space, physics of space, we'll call it that. We'll mer merge them together. So those are our presentations for tonight. So with that, let's begin and let's put our hands together as we welcome Abigail Clapp up to the stage with Say It With Me, I Love Soil. <laughs> so down is full. Okay. Hello everyone, my name is Abby um, and I have a confession to make. I love soil. <laughs> so I'm going to start with a little story. And it's a story that my mom tells from when I was younger. And it, you, oh, oh, sorry. And it usually goes something like, uh, oh, you would not stop all the time saying, mom, worms, until I got up, took you outside, and dug a hole in the yard for you to play in. So here's a picture of me doing just that. Meanwhile, my mom is behind the camera, forcing an encouraging smile and trying to hide how horrified she was. But I know now from working with kids that I was weird, but not that weird, because kids love playing in the soil and they love getting dirty. So I think the main difference between my mom and I is that she had already been taught, like many of us are, that soil is dirty. As for me, luckily, my mom encouraged my weirdness because fast forward 20 years, and I'm still playing in the soil, except now I get paid to do it. So tonight I'm going to talk to you about my career as a soil scientist and why I believe everybody on the planet should love soil too. So there are a couple different careers you can have as a soil scientist. My career revolves mainly around mapping soils and updating public soils information. So to map a soil first, you have to dig a hole. And we usually try to go to six feet or as deep as you can. Then once you have your hole dug, you split that soil out into different layers or horizons and describe the characteristics of each horizon such as texture, color, structure type, and pH. So here are a few of the tools that we use to do that in the field. We have our soil texture triangle, the Munsell color book, and some examples of soil structure types. So once you have these described, then you use these to tell what type of soil it is based on soil taxonomy. So soil taxonomy is a classification system that differentiates soils based on similar characteristics. So I'm going to try to um, explain it to you by using an example. So order is the highest, um, broadest definition you can have, and then series, a series is the most defined. So starting from order, an example of an order is an entosol. So an entosol is basically a young soil, a young undeveloped soil. Then we're going to define the entosol a little bit more into a fluvent, and the fluve part of that means an entosol that was deposited by a river. Then we're going to go into a great group, and we're going to defi define that even more. So the great group in this case is um, talking about the soil moisture regime, and the soil moisture regime is ustic. So now we have an ustifluvent. <laughs> Hope you're following. Then we have a subgroup. So we're going to define that even more, and our subgroup is Moloch in this case, and the Moloch is defining the surface horizon. So a Moloch is basically a thick, dark surface. So now we have a Moloch ustifluvent. 
Then we're going to define it even more, talking about the family. So the family is fine loamy mixed frigid. Fine loamy is talking about the average soil texture. Mixed is talking about the mineralogy, so we have a mixed mineralogy. And then um, frigid is talking about the soil temperature regime. So in the end, we have a fine loamy mixed frigid malic ustifluvent, and that equals a corchea series. Okay, so that's soil taxonomy a little bit. Um, that's all I'm going to go into it, but back to soil mapping. Um, when I learned about soils, I was surprised to learn that soils can change quite a lot over a landscape. So the things that make, the soils ch that make soils change are mainly the five soil forming factors. And the, oh, wow, that's a lot louder. Okay, good. Okay, so um, the five soil forming factors are climate, relief, organisms, parent material, and time. So... Um, here's a hill slope profile, and it is um, showing four different soil series appearing along the hill slope profile. So we have the summit at the top to the shoulder where it starts to curve down to the back slope where it's the steepest and the foot slope where it starts to curve off. So just along that hill slope profile, you can see that the soil is changing quite a lot. Okay, you might be asking at this point, why do we map soils? What's the importance of it? And I'd say mainly the reason we map soils is because it offers us valuable interpretive information about that soil. So it can tell us what you can and can't build, grow, or use that soil for. So all this information is accessible to you. It's on a website called Web Soil Survey. And... Um, you can go on there, type in your home address or a lot long location, and it will pull up a soil map for that location. So I got, went ahead and did a um, soil map for where we are here at Kawadi. So the smiley face designates our location. So we are standing on a sandy skeletal mixed mesic toriorthentic haplostals. Clear as mud? <laughs> All right, so that might not mean much to you unless for some strange reason... You study soil taxonomy in your spare time, but teach their own. So essentially what it's saying is it's sandy and very rocky. It has mixed mineralogy. It has soil temperatures ranging from 46 degrees to 59 degrees Fahrenheit. And it's in a dry climate with a thick, dark surface horizon that's high in organic matter, overlying a relatively young or undeveloped soil below that. So... What might, need, what might mean more to you is the interpretive information that's attached to this soil. So I looked up a few examples. Um, there's a ton that you can look up on Web Soil Survey, examples of these interpretive information. But to name a few, this soil is not good for septics, lawns, landscaping, golf fairways, but you can put a basement here. So that's valuable information that people that are building on this soil would want to know. Um, okay. How many people here own a home? And how many looked at the soil map before buying? All right, Laura gets a gold star. <laughs> She's my supervisor, so <laughs> she knows. But um, so here's an um, example of why you might want to look at the soil map. So this is a cracked foundation of a house, and um, it's cracked because of high shrink-swell clays. So shrink-swell clays, or expansive clays, as you might have heard them called, are 
clays that when soil moisture increases, say it rains, the clays expand, and then when it dries out, it contracts. So that expansion contraction motion then causes a foundation to crack. So here's a map of Colorado. And um, the dark colors, I think it's cut off. The dark color is uh, moderate to high shrink swell potential. The light orange color is low to moderate. And the yellow color is none to low. So as you can see, in El Paso County, whoop, right there, um, it's pretty widely spread that it's high to moderate or uh, low to moderate. So it's important to know that. Um, because you can engineer around it. It is a little bit more expensive up front, but it's a lot cheaper than having a cracked foundation in the long run, right? So another example, here's um, a news article that was in the news like several years ago, 2016, and it says, warnings did not stop development in Colorado Springs landslide zone. So essentially what happened is geologists had advised or warned, don't build here because it's a landslide zone. And we know that because it has a steep slope, it has claystones and shale, and when you get a little bit of spring moisture and develop on it, then that will equal a landslide. And you know, they didn't listen, so this is what happened. Their driveway is down the hill. So it's important to not only look at the soil map, but listen to the soil map, right? Okay. I know that was a lot of information, so here's some pictures of my cat at work with me in Denver. She's a little soil scientist, too. <laughs> so usually when I tell people what my job is, I leave it at, I'm a soil scientist. And then they usually look at me with a confused look, and they say, a what scientist? And then I say, I'm a soil scientist. And then they, I usually have to describe a little bit more about what I do. So I don't mind doing this, and I don't fault people for not understanding how or why being a soil scientist is a career. Because the truth is, most of us go our whole lives without thinking about soil, let alone thinking about it as a complex medium in which whole careers can surround, right? Over the years, as we modernize, which is also great, but as a result, over the years, we have become disconnected we have lost our connection from, to soil through food, oops, sorry, food, <laughs> filtering water, creating textiles, and providing us building materials. Today, if you ask a child where food comes from, they'll likely need the help of something like this to, to know. We're so disconnected from it that we call it dirt, and we look down on it as gross or filthy, when in fact, it's a beautiful ecosystem that we quite literally cannot live without. So, if you're wondering this, <laughs> so dirt is something that you track in on your shoes or you wash off your car or it's in a big pile somewhere and you don't know where it came from. That's the key, you don't know where it came from. Okay, so other than soil providing us food, clean water, clothing, building materials, a foundation to build our home on. I haven't mentioned this yet, but soils provide us antibiotics. Um, you should care about soil because you are soil. <laughs> Let me explain. So my professor in college has this idea that we are all 
living, breathing embodiments of soil because our bodies and functions of our bodies are built and fueled from nutrients that come from a plant that grow in the soil or come from an animal that eats the plant that grows in the soil. So, for example, those of you drinking beer here tonight, that beer contains barley, and barley contains calcium, and that barley plant took up, uh, was grown from soils in Idaho that contain calcium. So, now, as you drink that barley, then your body is using that calcium to support its bones. So, you now have Idahoan soils in your bones. And because of all the food that we import, you likely have soils from all over the world making up and fueling your body. So, I think that's pretty beautiful. And I think that's a great way that soil connects us all. Okay, so now that I've convinced you that you are soil and you should care about yourself and love yourself, right? Um, now, um, we're going to take a step back and we're going to look at soils from a broader perspective. And I'm going to have my friend Ronnie come up here and help me for this part. Yeah, give a hand for Ronnie. <laughs> so we're going to pretend that the apple is the world. And we're going to cut the world into four pieces. Sorry, our knife is a little dull. <laughs> We're going to cut the world into four pieces. Three of those pieces represent water, and one of those pieces represents land. And then we're going to cut the remaining piece in half. Half of that is mountains, deserts, and ice. And then we're going to cut the remaining piece into four. And three of those represents land that is too rocky, hot, wet, infertile, or covered in urban land. So what we have left is 130 seconds of the world, and we're just going to cut the peel off of that. So the peel represents the land that is good for growing food for every single person on the planet. So not a lot, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's important for us to know what soils are where, how best to use them, and that we take care of them. Because soils can do amazing things. They provide us food, clean water, clothing, building materials, foundation to build our home on, antibiotics. I haven't mentioned this one yet, but they're a huge carbon sink. So they help protect against climate change, and they prevent against natural disasters such as flooding. Okay, soils can do amazing things, but they can only do that when they're healthy. Time and time again throughout history, we've seen entire civilizations fall because they misuse their soil. And make no mistake, this is not just history. This is still happening today. We are losing 1% or 24 billion tons of soil every single year due to water and wind erosion. Our soils are becoming less fertile, less resistant to erosion, less able to hold water available to plants, and more dependent on fertilizers. So not great, right? But it's not all bad. We know how to make our soils healthy, and the best news is that we can make our soils healthy again. So there are four soil health principles, and I'm gonna, def I'm gonna um, 
narrow it down even more into really two main categories. And the categories are feeding, because soil is a living organism. We're going to feed the soil, and we're going to protect the soil. So in terms of feeding, we want to maximize continuous living roots, and we want to maximize biodiversity. And then in terms of protecting, we want to minimize disturbance and maximize soil cover. Okay. And other good news, 492 million acres are already under no-till and conservation agriculture systems. Um, this graph is slightly deceiving because it's only 0.1% of farmable land, but it's progress. And I believe by continuing to make this progress and changing our mindset in how we view soil and how we value soil, then we can keep ourselves, prevent ourselves from repeating history. Okay, I have one more demonstration for you guys. Sorry, I might need this. So this last demonstration, um, this last demonstration <laughs> is basically, I love it because it's, um, it's called the Slake Test, and it demonstrates how healthy soils versus unhealthy soils react to water erosion. So give me a second to set it up. Okay, so this is the unhealthy soil. Okay, that's all I'm going to do because I think I'm going to run out of water. But you can see that the soil um, is fairly unstable. There's lots of um, soil coming off from that water erosion, or from that water erosion and um, making the soil cloudy, right? It's coming off of, so you can imagine if this was in a field that's growing food, this soil would be going away from in the field where we want it into a water source where we don't want it, right? Okay, now we're gonna do the healthy soil. Okay, so there's a few pieces of organic matter floating around, but basically it's stable, and it's staying where you want it to stay, right? So which water would you rather drink? <laughs> That's what's coming into your water supply. Okay. So, in conclusion, I believe that if there's one thing that everybody in the world can agree on, it's that our lives depend on soils. And if they don't agree, I think we could easily convince them by taking away their food, clean water, clothes, building materials, foundation to build their home on, and antibiotics, right? Okay. Now, thank you for listening. That's all I have for you. Um, I love soil. I hope you now have love for soil. And I hope you all say this last part with me on the count of three. One, two, three. I love soil. Oh. Okay. Um, sorry. Does anybody have any questions? Yes. Yeah, totally. Okay. So um, she asked in the cropped um, acronym, what does relief stand for? So relief is talking about, um, essentially, it's talking about slope. So 
Relief is that um, change in hill slope and topography is basically. So that um, hill slope profile that I showed, um, relief would be talking about the difference of a soil at the top of the hill versus a soil at the bottom of the hill. Great question. Thank you. Yes. Yes, I love that question. So um, she asked, what can we do at home or what can we do on a daily basis to make our soils healthier? And um, I would say on a broad scale, thinking about where you're buying your food. Um, if you can buy from local farmers that are practicing um, some soil health practices, organic um, Organic practices, that doesn't always mean no-till, but if you can learn that about your local farms, that's a great way to support. Um, otherwise, if you garden at home, so it's really you can apply those same principles to your garden at home. And frankly, I know everybody loves their grass, but soil does, or the climate in Colorado does not always support fescue or Kentucky bluegrass. So if you can um, diversify your lawn, that helps a lot too. Those plants that are um, tall like prairie grasses or short prairie grasses have really long roots and they'll sequester a lot more carbon than um, other type of grasses and you won't have to use as much water. So yes. Um, not necessarily, no. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, does no-till require more fertilizer was the question. And no, it doesn't. No-till is, um, it's more talking about uh, the process of planting. So farmers till because it will recycle that soil up to where they can just plant that seed in versus a no-till system wouldn't um, turn the soil like that. So it would kind of, um, it wouldn't require more fertilizer. The idea with um, no-till systems is you also use other systems like cover crops that will apply those nutrients into the soil. So by adding more plants, that are diverse species of plants, then you're adding more nutrients to the soil and you're starting that cycle. So soils and microorganisms are living in a symbiotic relationship where they cycle nutrients together. And by having a no-till system, you're adding those plants into the soil and they'll help add nutrients to that versus leaving the soil bare. Does that make sense? I hope I answered that okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Abigail, for sharing your love of soil with all of us today. Um, if you guys have any other questions or comments, you want to talk to her during our break, feel free to tap her on the shoulder and, and ask. Um, and now is going to be one of our favorite segments of the night is Nerd Night Trivia. This time it's going to be Holiday Edition. So if you guys can please behave like good little boys and girls and raise your hands if you know the answer, I will call on you 
There's no wrong answers. There's only airheads. So give, uh, give me, uh, let's go ahead and see what's going to come up. All right. Who was the first president to pardon a turkey? No. Give this lady an airhead, please. <laughs> nope. Nope. I can't hear. Nope. Nope, they already said that guy. Nope. Yes! <laughs> Kennedy. John F. Kennedy. Awesome. All right. How many calories, on average, are consumed per person at Thanksgiving dinner? I'm going to give you guys four tries, and whoever guesses the closest without going over is going to be the winner. No. How much? Nope. Nope, close though. One more. Closest, 4,500 calories. Yeah, that's a lot. Keep that in mind next Thursday. And the last question for this series is, Black Friday is the biggest day of the year for what trade profession? I can't hear. Nope. It's a trade profession. Nope. Yes, plumbers. Oh, pum pum. Yeah. All right. So, follow, like, review, and share us. We're gonna have a 10-15 minute break. Go ahead and refill your drinks. Grab another bite to eat, and we will meet you in on the stage shortly. All right, nerds, let's get back in our seats. We have two fantastic people that came dressed for their presentation today. So let's put our hands together for Birgit, Birgit? Bir Birgit, Birgit and Jane from Colorado Springs Utilities and there's our Trivia and Trends, Your Energy System. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. You have the energy stick? Yeah. In your pocket. All right. This is our very first nerd night. So we were so nervous, we thought we'd dress up in some camouflage. <laughs> I'm Birgit. This is Jane. We both have natural science backgrounds. We work at Colorado Springs Utilities. Woohoo! All right. Raise your hand if you're a Colorado Springs Utilities customer. Oh, man, we got the right people in the house. All right. I actually work on the water side, so this is my first attempt at trying to tell you about our energy system. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. And then Jane, she's a, she, yeah. And I'm Jane. It, this can be shocking. It's going to electrify you. You're going to, and you're like, it's going to be illuminating, absolutely illuminating. So, yeah, we're going to kick it off. All right. So who knows Colorado Springs Utilities tagline? 
It's how we're all connected. You got it. All right, so we thought on that theme, we're going to start off with a little exercise. And we need six volunteers. Six volunteers. All right, okay, one, two, uh, three. That's three. Four. Come on up. Uh, four. We need two more. Come on, brave souls out there. Okay, five, six. Excellent. All right, come on up. Jane, you want to lead this? Okay, so you are willing volunteers, and the only thing you have to do is be willing to hold hands. Okay? So, great. Come on up. So we are going to create a human circuit to demonstrate how we're all connected. So we're all very large water balloons walking around the earth, very large conductors, about 70 to 80% water. So we're going to demonstrate how... Electricity can flow through all of you and me. This will not hurt. It will not hurt. Okay? All right. So, are we ready? Uh, I'm going to have to put down the microphone. Or you could just touch the microphone. Here, I'll just do this. Yeah. Here we go. Okay. Yes, you got it. We already have an electric aficionado up here. He's a, he's a lineman, I'm sure. Electrician. All right. Here we go. He's got to hold the metal part. Okay, so bear get touched that to your nose. He has to hold the metal part. Oh, here we oh oh here we go. We got drunk nerds tonight. It's how we're all connected. Woo! All right. Thank you, volunteers. Nice work, nice work. Okay. It flows through you and me. Thank you. Appreciate you volunteering. Excellent. Well done. Okay, so I guess the record for creating a circuit with this nifty little device was over 1,000 students. Was that in Texas somewhere? Texas. They like to go big, right? But I think maybe we could try to break the world record right here in Colorado Springs. I mean, we've got some going. Yeah, all right. maybe that's something we can take on sometime in our freeze. Spare time. Okay, so we wanted to introduce you a little bit to uh, Colorado Springs. And uh, we've got a little bit of trivia for you, because I hear that's what you guys like. And uh, some trends. Jane's going to talk about what's happening in the future, what we got coming, coming our way. So uh, just to clarify, um, I know some of you might find this shocking, but Colorado Springs Utilities does not look like this. Um, it's more like this, okay? So... Uh, we, uh, we provide four services to you, for you guys. And in case you didn't know what they were, uh, check your utility bill. Uh, it'll tell you. And it's electric. Oops, I didn't want to do that just yet. Wrong one. Oh, my gosh. Jumping ahead. Here, we have uh, electric, natural gas, water, and wastewater. I loved Abby's talk. And I love soil. I love soil. I love soil. And you should, too, because... Uh, Water, it, it, we need good soil so we have good, clean water. I'm getting off topic. I'm a water uh, scientist. But we're going to talk about electricity. And um, so one thing that some people don't realize is that Colorado Springs Utilities is a community-owned, not-for-profit utility. Now, what this means is you guys own us. We are here to steward your resources. And we are not-for-profit. I know it may not seem like it lately with your bill going up, right? But 
we cannot charge you more than what it costs us to provide that service to you. So we have to pass through the cost, though. If natural gas goes up, we buy that off the market. If it goes up, we have to pass that cost on to you. Electricity, we generate ourselves. We'll talk about that in a minute. Water, we have to purchase the water rights, and then we have to clean it and serve it to you. Our pipes are old. They're starting to break. We've got to fix them. That cost gets passed on to you. So I'm sorry. If you have an issue with our, your bill, uh, Christian is right on the end of the table. You can see him later. He'll answer all your questions. <laughs> okay. All right. So trivia time. Oh, my goodness. I know there's a cuss word in there. I apologize. But what is a gigawatt? What? Okay. So we thought we'd uh, start off with a little trivia about your energy system here tonight. And I did put around some paper ones here, too, that you can fill out. So we're going to quiz you a little bit. Okay, we're going to test your knowledge on your energy system here today. One megawatt. Okay, megawatts is how we're talking about energy here. We have our power plants that put out megawatts of power, and people use kilowatt hours, and, you know, huge factories use megawatts or whatever. What is a megawatt? Huh. How many homes can be powered off of one megawatt? Okay, by the way... There are some prizes included in your guessing tonight. And Patty over here is going to demonstrate what we have on the table later for you to come collect should you be correct in your guessing. We have a lovely pair of sunglasses with Color Springs Utilities logo on it. Look at that. Excellent. And then we have ice scrapers. will come in very handy uh, Friday, I hear. And then we've got a light bulb. An LED light bulb for you to save money on your utility bill. Mm-hmm. Absolutely nice. And uh, what is that on your head, Patty? Uh, oh, we have a history book. If you're really a nerd and you want to know all about the history of your Colorado Springs utilities, man, this book is for you. Oh, we have a light-up keychain, and it's very festive for the holidays, shaped in a holiday light. You don't want to miss that. And uh, what else do we have? Oh, we've got... Uh, seeds, and I think we might have a pop socket for your phone. Or, there's a couple of th very useful items over there. You really want to guess. Okay, so here we go. How many number? Uh, how many homes do you think can be powered by one megawatt? Okay, how many homes powered by one megawatt? Want to take a guess? 175. Well, that's a good guess. Oh my gosh, have you been checking your phone for answers? No. Oops, wrong direction. Uh, we actually estimate about 650. 650? Anyone close? Anyone close? Uh, okay. Prizes are awaiting. Okay. So, 650 homes, one megawatt. Now, just so you know, the average monthly residential use is what, about 600, 650 megawatts, too. But um, what the peak day for all the residents, all the businesses, all the things we have going on in the city that use electricity, like right here. What do you think the peak use was? And this, we hit the record last July. What do you think it is? Oh my gosh, no, no more. What's your guess? Oh, you're closer. It's a little bit more than 750. Closer though. Yeah. Uh, less than that, thank God. It was, uh, whoop, what happened? 
This number is supposed to go wrap around. I don't know why it's acting weird. It's 989, almost 1,000 uh, megawatts in one day, in one day, okay? So that was the record. If you were close to 1,000, I think you were the closest, you get to go visit the table. All right, so I don't know why it's wrapping around. Ignore that. How many miles of power lines do we have? All right, what's your guess? Nine. <laughs> Ignore the number here. <laughs> More than nine. How many miles? Think about this is all the transmission, distribution. That we've got a lot of power lines. What do you think? Oh, wow. Wait, really? Did you go to our website and check our facts and figures? Oh, my goodness. You are a winner. 3,849. Close enough. All right? That's a lot. That's a lot. Okay? Now, of those, most of our electric lines are buried underground, right? That's the safest way, unless you're a contractor and didn't call 811 first to check where the lines are buried, right? So, burying is the best, but we do have several overhead electric lines in the older parts of the city. Um, what percentage of our electric lines do you think are overhead? What percentage? Way in the back. 30%, I'm going to give it to you. That's pretty close. It's 26. 26% of our power lines are overhead. And now this was the fact that we had before last winter's windstorm. 100 mile per hour winds don't work well with overhead power lines. Some of you might have experienced that. So um, we're trying to get some of those, more of those buried. Okay. All right. Now, this was an interesting fact that our CEO just shared with us last week. I thought I'd throw it in there. To get water to town, we have to bring it in from like over 100 miles away, and that requires a lot of pump stations, and that requires a lot of energy. What do you think we spend to just in the electric costs just to move water to town? What do you think? Four, four grand? More than that. Way more than that. Annually, how much do we spend? Daily? Oh, well, then, yeah, multiply that, and you're closer. All right. How many? It's in the millions. It's actually eight. So you are close, whatever. Go see the vi visit the table later. Okay, so $8 million in electric costs just to get water to town. All right. When do you think most of the energy is being used? What time of day? What time of day do you think most energy is being used? What do you think? What's that? 5 p.m. I'm going to give it to you. Yeah, it's between 4 to 7 p.m. That is the high peak use of energy. So in the future, we may be asking people to curtail their peak use time. Because when we have a huge spike in energy needs, that means we have to build enough power plants and generate enough electricity to meet that spike. If we can get that spike down, then we don't have to put so much money into building infrastructure, right? So as people you get more and more into using electric cars and stuff, it's so easy to go home after work and just plug it in. Well, maybe it's better if you set it on a timer to start charging after 7 p.m. Shave that peak down. Okay, that's what we'd like. Okay, number of generation plants. We got to make electricity for you. We got power plants. We got all kinds of stuff to make electricity for you. How many generation plants do we have. What do you think? We got a guess over here. Four. It's more than four. Less than ten. More than six. More than seven. Eight is correct. We have eight. We have eight. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, I got I to gotta hurry it up because Jane's like, you're stealing my time. Okay, so real quick, of the, of the uh, amount of energy that we produce for you, what percentage do you think comes from renewables, like wind, solar, and hydro? What do you think? Uh, we're better than that. Yeah, more, but not much more. It's, seven, it's 17, I don't know why it's doing that, 17%. Okay, and this is what our community hopefully is proud of us for. We stopped burning coal at our downtown power plant in what year? 2021, go visit the table. And we plan on having how much reduction in carbon by 2030? It's 80, it's 80, but we're actually gonna go for 90. We're good, but that's what we're held to. All right, and then natural gas, we don't have time for natural gas, sorry, we're gonna skip it. No, you want to? Okay, natural gas is what you use. Some people use it to heat their homes, some people use it to you know, heat their water in their water heater, some people use it for their fireplaces or their stoves. Natural gas, we uh, purchase it off the market. Um, how much natural gas do you think you use as a resident in a year? No guesses? I'll tell you, 800, okay? And then natural gas gates. So we purchase the natural gas off the, the market and we bring it into town through gates, through gate stations. How many gate stations do we have? Five, you guys are on it. How many miles of natural gas pipelines do we have? Buried everywhere, like all over, like thousands. Okay, we have 5,643, that's a lot. This is why if you are a contractor, you must call 811, otherwise you have a very good chance of hitting one of these. And then uh, what is it that we add to natural gas so you can smell it? It smells like rotten eggs, do you know? Sulfur, kind of smells like sulfur, but what's the name of it, do you know? <laughs> it's called Mercaptain. All right, awesome job, you guys. I'm going to pass it over to Jane. Okay. Thank you, Birgit. So the Mercaptain that's added to our natural gas, those delightful scratch and sniff sticker cards are being passed around. Smell that for your delight. It's the smell of rotten eggs. Make sure you know that smell. It's the smell of safety. Is it up or down? It's down? All right, so we already discussed our energy goal. So this is a federal goal, and this is what we are trying to do. Our utility, municipally owned, is trying to get on board with this 80% reduction in carbon emissions by 2030. Do you like that smell? Are you liking that? Loving it? I see you over there. You just, you're going to put it under your pillow tonight? All right, so here's our energy goal. Here's the fun stuff. So this is what Color Springs Utilities is trying to do. So we're trying to reduce or eliminate those carbon emissions. We're taking that proactive approach to green energy. We're trying to commit to that idea that we're going to do renewable energy with solar, purchasing wind on the market, using hydro energy to get to that 80% reduction in 2030. It is a lofty goal. It is going to be rigorous for us to get there. So in generation, when we make electricity for our customers, of course, we have to generate it somehow. So we can generate that through coal, natural gas, solar, wind, hydro. 
then we have to deliver it through those very large transmission lines, those lines you see running along your highways, very, very high voltage lines that travel, and then are reduced in, uh, they're stepped down in electricity in our distribution stations. So you have those substations throughout your neighborhoods. There are about 52 of those in our neighborhoods. You might have seen a substation. They're very, they're pretty ugly, but they're fenced in areas and that's where we step down the electricity and then deliver it into our distribution lines. So if you live on the west side or in an older area of our city, our beautiful city, you probably have overhead lines like me but if you live in a newer area, north, northeast, east of us, you probably have underground lines. So the underground lines are used, uh, their transformers look like this. They're those little green boxes. And they also step down the, the electricity or the current before it goes into your house. And then it's delivered to our customers. So I would encourage you, next time you charge your phone or you turn on that light switch, to think about the journey it takes to make electricity before it gets to the switch. It's pretty impressive. All right, so we talked about megawatts, and one megawatt <laughs> produces energy for about 650 homes, 600 to 900 really, depending on the size of the home. And in our current energy portfolio, we can we have the capacity for just under 1300 megawatts or about 1.3 gigawatts and this is our portfolio right here you can see the natural gas is still there still a fossil fuel we still have coal in our portfolio but we're trying to get away from that so this is what our future looks like you can see in 2020 that's what it looked like and that's what we're trying to get to in 2030. So hopefully you can see that slide and our portfolio changing to those non-carbon fuels or carbon carbon free fuels in order to generate electricity. Come on remote. All right, so some of our assets. So how many of you have uh, driven down to Pueblo? or maybe past the Clear Spring Ranch area towards the Pikes Peak International Raceway. So that's our Nixon power plant. It's still a coal-fired power plant, and we are aiming to shut that down no later than 2030, hopefully by 2025. That is our coal-fired power plant still in our energy portfolio. We also have the Front Range power plant that I uh, endearingly refer to as our beast. And it is a natural gas-fired power plant, and it produces about 450 megawatts of power. So you can see it's a pretty large contributor to our total energy portfolio. So that's really important. We have that and Nixon, and then we also have a solar field down there. So 10 megawatts of solar down at Clear Spring Ranch. So as you fly on by south at Pueblo, just wave to our Clear Spring Ranch, about 3,600 3, acres that we own down there that generates energy for our city. All right, so how many of you are familiar with the Drake power plant downtown? Okay, we stopped burning coal in August of 2021, pretty momentous day, and that coal is now gone, and at this location right now, it is completely transformed. Now, we have natural gas generators, 
And there are six of those. How many of you have seen those smaller, smaller stacks next to the larger stacks that are now at our Drake plant site? Anyone seen those? Yes. All right. So each one of those stacks can produce up to 35 megawatts of very quick, dispatchable energy generation. They can fire up in less than 10 minutes. And our natural gas generators are going to be the wave of the future. Uh, we're still reliant on natural gas. So this is what one of those natural gas generators looks like. And we have a video that hopefully Maritza can help me with. Stand by. So these natural gas generators are just being built. I see it on your screen, but not my screen. Can you see the generators? They're beautiful. Envision it right now. They're right there. I see it on your I see it on the computer. It's thinking. Sure. Question. Natural gas is a hydrocarbon. And it is a combination of a bunch of very flammable natural gases that burn at just under 1,200 degrees. It's mostly made of methane. So natural gas is a combination of methane, ethane, butane, but it's very high, flamm has a high flammability range, and it burns really well to generate electricity, and it burns really well in our homes to heat our water, dry our clothes, heat up our homes. So natural gas is a very good commodity, and it's, um, it's a fossil fuel. So it's, it's, it's mined from the earth. Yes, great question. Thank you. Yes. A, a way to harvest it from... A way to harvest methane from pollution in the air. Um, not, not currently, but we are exploring options with biogas. And biogas is when we take the solids that we use from our wastewater and we're able to burn those solids and turn it into biogas. So it could be, that could be another source. We're currently studying that. Great question. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. Is solids a euphemism for... Uh, it could be, but a lot of our solids are actually flushable wipes. Flushable wipes are a no-no. Flushable wipes are not flushable. So a lot of our solids are flushable, are flushable wipes. Yes, good question. And we do have at our Clear Spring Ranch facility that I mentioned before, we do take all of our solids and it goes in a solids pipeline 18 miles down the road, a big muddy sludge all the way down the road, and it's buried. So we're hoping that those buried solids we could repurpose. Yes, great questions. Anything else? All right. So you can see by this slide here the comparison of coal to natural gas. That's pretty, that's pretty self-explanatory. I think the biggest takeaway here 
is that all of the folks who are working at our Drake power plant, about 60 employees, are now very gamefully employed at Colorado Springs Utilities with other types of positions, and they're really serving our utility in great ways. So because coal is dead to us in that realm, they're also now working in, the other, in, other, in other spaces. So that's a really um, nice feeling as a community-owned utility that we're, we were able to take care of our employees. All right, so I've talked about renewable energy. About 11% of our portfolio is hydropower. Uh, solar, about 5%. And then wind, we do not own any wind turbines. We actually purchase it on the open market. So we also have energy traders who are actively 24-7 purchasing and selling our power on the market. So if we have a glut of natural gas, we actually sell it. If we need more power and we need it in the form of renewable energy, we buy wind power. We usually buy it from the northeastern sector of the state, usually from Excel or other um, investor-owned utilities. But th those are the, our sources of renewable energy. All right. So how many of you have been to the Air Force Academy? Great. We have a hidden gem up there. And this is our Tesla hydro plant. It is located above our two primary water treatment plants. These two water treatment plants are where we get all or most of our drinking water for the city. So these, these two facilities treat the water, but above there, when it comes down the hill in a very, very high velocity, we are able to capture that water and make energy. So the Tesla hydro plant is able to capture that water, spin a really fast turbine, and create up to 35 megawatts of power. Actually, that's wrong, about 11 megawatts of power. Our total capacity for hydros, the four, the four hydros we have is 35 megawatts, which, do the math, 35 megawatts is how many homes? Come on, nerds. You're thinking, you're thinking. All right, so we take the energy we generate in the Tesla hydro plant, and it's put into this substation and taken down transmission lines and put into our distribution system. So this is uh, our Tesla. This is our Tesla hydro turbine at work, and this is water flying down Stanley Canyon from Rampart Reservoir, hitting the turbine. That is turning at about. 60 revolutions per second. And this turbine weighs about 70 tons. So we are able to capture the velocity of the water and turn it into energy, which I think hydros are amazing. If you love soil, you should love hydros. <laughs> All right, so solar, we're installing a whole lot of solar. This is one of our solar arrays out east, about 35 megawatts. And of course, this is only captured during the sun, when the sun is shining. These solar panels rotate with the, the current of the sun, or the, the position of the sun in the, in the sky. And Colorado Springs Utilities is really keeping its eye on current trends in the energy industry. And we're really trying to stay innovative and do continuous improvement. So obviously we have solar generation, 
we have a lot of residential solar in our city. How many of you have residential solar on your roofs? Rooftop, all right, see you back there. Home battery systems are becoming more popular. So some more trends in energy that, we, that we'd like to explore. All right, so solar. This is a solar roof right here. You want me to go back? Did you like that? There you go, that's for you. That's for all of you nerds. So this is a complete solar roof. This is a Tesla solar roof. And those shingles are solar panels. They look just like this. And uh, they're, they're pretty sleek. So solar is getting very advanced and um, more efficient. Tesla power walls, these are home battery systems. How many of you have invested in home battery systems? Any early adopters out there? No early adopters? Okay. So these are our backup systems. And another backup system coming soon is uh, EVs. This is the Ford F-150 Lightning. And it can actually power your home for up to three to four days with its battery backup. So a new trend there, a little microgrid. And uh, of course, coming to a utility near you very soon is uh, more storage devices in the form of battery energy storage systems. So these battery energy storage systems are very large connexes, very large kind of garage looking boxes. And inside are battery packs that can hold lots and lots of storage of energy. So of course, when we're generating energy during the day, we can store it and then dispatch it into our energy system. So about 100 megawatts coming soon, 2025, to a city near you, ours. They likely will be lithium ion batteries, uh, but there are new technologies and, and the, the, the technology is flying so quickly that by 2025, they may not be lithium ion, right, right. So there are concerns with lithium-ion, I hear you. All right, so we have our local fiber, fiber expert. That's you over there, quit drinking beer, come on up here. That's you, uh-huh. So how many of you have heard about the fiber that Color Springs Utilities is installing? Okay, great. This is a really educated group, I love it, love it. So I'm Christian, Jane asked me to come up here and just talk about a little bit about our fiber project. So, oh sorry, better? Okay, so as Jane and Birgit mentioned, we are a four service utility, right? Oh, am I in the way? You can't take me anywhere. So water, wastewater, gas, electricity. Um, we are currently building or actually rebuilding our fiber network. That does not mean that we are adding a fifth service. We are not going into the internet business. We are a wires company. Putting wire in the ground, whether it's fiber or electric line, comes naturally to us. So that's what we're doing. Colorado Springs Utilities actually has had fiber in the ground for about 30 years. Now, unfortunately, that means our fiber is 30 years old. So we use that fiber network to speak to our infrastructure. It's a high-speed, secure way for our facility, our grid control network to talk to our substations, our transmission lines to really control how power moves across our local grid. So we are at the point, because that fiber network is so old, 
we have to rebuild our fiber network, especially for, not just for our capacity. We're adding substations, but because of the, the cybersecurity concerns, we need a high-speed, very secure fiber network to speak to our own power and infrastructure here in town. The bill for us to build our own fiber network, and by us I mean you, is about $450 million. So we decided on a different model. If we put our fiber in the ground, but then we go to private industry and to internet service providers like Ting Internet and others, and we rent basically capacity space on our fiber network, we can, over a 20, 30 year payback, get private industry to pay for that installation. So that will, of course, up the cost of it. It will go from about 450 to between 600 and 700 million dollars. These, you know, pretty soon we're talking real money, right? But over that time frame, we will have private industry paying for that cyber network, for that uh, fiber network. The other additional fact on that is we can't, as a utility, just go to Comcast. You know, or, or another private entity to lease space on their uh, network. It's not secure enough. We have critical infrastructure. A lot of our customers happen to be associated with the United States military. So our customers for our fiber network need the highest levels of security. So not only can we rent our capacity to like a Ting Internet or other internet service providers, but for example, some of our local school districts already rent capacity and pay us for um, our, dark, our dark fiber so that they don't have to go through an internet service provider. Um, our military bases are, are uh, using us for uh, fiber capacity as well. So I'm getting the shut the hell up signal. So that's fiber. All right. So. We know you guys are a very engaged audience. Uh, we've really appreciated your questions. We have some cards over here with QR codes on them that address some of our hot topics right now. And I would encourage you as uh, community owners of our utility and very engaged citizens to have a voice. And our utility board meetings are once a month. They are every third Wednesday of the month. And you can make customer comments. You can, you can make your voice heard. So we would encourage you to do that. You can also run for city council, which is also our utilities board. So uh, be those citizen scientists and citizen uh, contributors. And we really appreciate the time tonight. We've, we've really enjoyed this, and, and it was a great opportunity. Thank you so much. Uh, we have lots of prizes left, yes. And we'll be here for more questions. We're kind of easy to find over here. Thank you so much, guys. We appreciate you so much. It's been so much fun to have you here tonight. Um, if anyone has any more questions, comments, or wants to hang out with those guys, they're all over there, and they're not hard to find. So tap them on the shoulder and ask them your questions. So we are going to continue on with our Nerd Night Trivia um, November edition this time, so not specifically holiday. Question number one. The first medical school for women opened in November of 1848 in which U.S. city? Guesses, medical city, U.S.? Boston. Boston, yes. We've got a winner over here. 
All right. Question number two. Remember, raise your hands, guys. The Parker Brothers first introduced which popular board game in November of 1935? Yes, ma'am, Monopoly it is. And our last question of trivia for the night is, which famous physicist and chemist was born in November of 1867? Marie Curie, yes, she got it. And uh, I found this funny little meme. All I want for Christmas is a uranium isotope. So, of course, everyone does. Um, and again, follow, like, review, share us on the Facebook, on the Instagram. Um, contact us, send us a message. I know some of you have tapped me on the shoulder and said that you, wanted, you were interested in presenting, so please do so. We have one more presenter to amaze us on physics coming up next. So please stay tuned. Refill those drinks and we'll be right back. Five minutes. Five minutes. All right, nerds. Let's get it together. Let's put our nerd caps back on and we are ready for our last presenter of the evening. So let's put our hands together for Marty France, and he's going to tell us about the physics of space. Hey, thank you, Flip. Uh, Maritza, appreciate everyone coming out tonight and uh, staying with us. Uh, great presentations on uh, soil and the utilities. Really like to uh, thank uh, both of those presenters. And uh, now we're going to go into space, though. We've uh, moved on from the terrestrial world, and we're going to talk space. So a little bit about me, um, I retired a few years ago as the head of the Astro Engineering Department up at the Air Force Academy. Um, so yeah, I'm a rocket scientist, which gets me in trouble around the house for repairs every now and then, but um, because I really can't do a whole lot other than solve differential equations. But we're going to talk uh, space tonight, and uh, you know, this is Colorado Springs. So I know that there are a lot of people here that know quite a bit about space. Plus, you should know some things about space because, I mean, this is a cool space city. Uh, right now, I'm now and I'm retired. I've I've got one of my better job titles. I've retired, but now I'm working part time for Space Force, and I'm an instructor of orbital warfare now, which um, this is one of my favorite job titles. Hopefully, I never have to actually practice that, but uh, I am a warfare fighter now. These are some of the patches from our spacecraft up at the Air Force Academy that we've flown. Several of them are on orbit uh, right uh, still to this day, um, including Falcon Sat 3 that was launched 16 years ago. So, let's see. Let's see if this works. Point it. Okay. There we go. Okay. What do we talk about tonight? We'll give a little bit of background, some history, and some information about space. I want to do this quickly so we have time for questions. Um, I'll talk about orbits and then per, uh, different missions. This is uh, about my, well, I've done several Nerd Night shows, four different topics up in Denver. Uh, this one is my first on orbital mechanics. I've also talked about interplanetary trajectories, which is always fun, rocket propulsion, and then orbital warfare. If you're interested in more of this on Sunday at 3 p.m. 
I'm going to be at Lost Friend Brewing Company on Montebello and Academy and giving a presentation on uh, planetary defense and NASA's DART mission that was just successful very recently. So we can answer questions about that too. But we're going to quickly give you about a three semester hour course in uh, astro engineering here in about 20 minutes. So hang with me. Okay? Now, I know this is Colorado Springs, but for any of you that live east of Powers, I want to make this perfectly clear. Let's see. Come on. This isn't working. There we go. The world is not flat. Okay? So we're not going to talk about any moon landings, faked moon landings, flat earth, anything like that. Okay? I... I realize there are areas around, let's say, InterQuest and Voyager that aren't quite cool with this. But here, please just assume the Earth is not flat. Also, let's realize that many of the movies we see aren't very accurate. We cannot just go up into space where there's no gravity and then use a fire extinguisher to move ourselves around from, let's say, one spacecraft to another station and have tea with the Chinese. That just doesn't work, okay? In fact, the space station, here's the view of the International Space Station. I know some of you slipped out because at 6.48 this evening, the space station flew overhead. Uh, you can check with NASA, they'll tell you when it flies over. Um, on any given evening, after the sun sets, about an hour after sunset, if it's a clear night, you can go out and actually see satellites uh, here in Colorado Springs. We do that on our deck with some scotch frequently. But here's the International Space Station. This thing is bigger than a football field. And everyone needs to realize that when it's up there in space, uh, well, let's do our trivia question here. How fast is the space station moving? Any, uh, anyone want to guess? Someone, someone try here. Go ahead. About what? Uh, no, more than a thousand. Go ahead. Uh, more than eight thousand. The space station is moving around the Earth at seventeen thousand five hundred miles an hour. It's moving at about seven and a half kilometers per second. Okay? Seven and a half kilometers per second, and it's up about 400 kilometers. Um, okay, let's see. This is not... There we go. So let's talk about what does it take to get something up into orbit moving 17,500 miles an hour in low Earth orbit. And this is a model that I think many of you have seen before. If we presume that we... Let's say this is Pikes Peak, not located well, but up there at the North Pole. And we're in a very tall mountain. It's tall enough that we're above the atmosphere. And we shoot something from Pikes Peak, let's say, heading straight east. Gravity is going to pull it towards the center of the Earth. And it's eventually going to fall and hit the Earth because gravity's pulling on it, right? If I shoot something that's moving a little bit faster... Guess what happens? It goes a little bit further, but the gravity still, gravity still pulls it back to the center of the Earth, and it hits. 
and I go a little bit faster, and I go a little further, do you know what we call something that does, maybe covers about that much ground? That's an ICBM, <laughs> okay? That's an ICBM is just a satellite that happens to hit the Earth. But if we go fast enough, and this means going, that means moving about um, eight kilometers before we fall only five meters, what happens is if we go into orbit, we're actually falling around the Earth. Orbit means falling around the Earth. So if I get moving fast enough, and I don't have the air slowing me down, so I'm up high enough, I can actually, oops, go into orbit. And that red orbit, and let's go back, because I blew my joke, okay? <laughs> to get going that fast, we've got to go from on the ground to 17,500 miles an hour, and anyone who stayed up late last night to see the Artemis launch got to see some of that. And when SpaceX or Artemis or any of the other rockets that go up there launch, about how long does it take to go from on the ground to 17,500 miles an hour? Any guesses? About eight minutes. Okay, eight minutes. So why I've got a Tesla Model S here is a Tesla Model S goes from zero to 60 in a little over three seconds. To go from the ground to orbit in eight minutes, if you're an astronaut, that's like going from zero to 60 in two seconds and doing that for eight minutes straight. Okay, that's why those engines are so big. And that's why space is so difficult and why we have so many failures when we're launching things into space, because it is a very, very hard thing to do. Okay? Nope. Okay, so a little background. These are what I call my dogs, dead old white guys <laughs> that form the basis for the science that we call astroengineering. Okay? And my, my favorite or my first dead old white guy is this guy. Anyone know him? Go ahead. Copernicus. Copernicus. Excellent. Yes, Copernicus. Statue of him in Warsaw, Poland. I made a sacred pilgrimage there once. It was wonderful. This is Copernicus the moment he decided or discovered that the sun is at the center of the solar system. A well-documented moment. He's got his map. There you go. You can see there's the sun in the center and uh, the planets going around. Of course, he was a heretic. Um, he was followed by my favorite. Anyone know this? This is a real trivia question. Say again? No, we'll get to him. Brahe, Tycho Brahe, yeah. Tycho Brahe was the party animal in the astronomy world. Tycho had a big observatory that doubled as his party house on a Danish island where he, liked, he had a pet moose that he liked to get drunk. I'm not kidding. He had a pet moose. He also liked to duel. He had a, uh, doesn't really show here, oops, doesn't really show here, but he had a, uh, a silver prosthetic nose. He lost his nose in a sword fight. And he used to have this tradition where whenever he had a dinner party, you couldn't leave the dinner party to pee until the dinner was over. And Tycho died of a ruptured bladder. He really did, okay? 
So, after Brahe, but he, well, I didn't say what Brahe did, did I? Yeah. Anyway, what Brahe did was the, the guy, every night he'd have a party, and then he would take incredibly accurate astronomical measurements in the days before we even had telescopes, just using astrolabes, and, and his, his um, observatory was good enough to get down to the um, arc, arc second measurements, for those of you who know what arc seconds are. Okay? He was followed by... Here we go, Kepler. Kepler took Brahe's measurements and decided that he could figure out the path of satellites. And he came up with Kepler's three laws. Um, Kepler's laws basically said that all the, all the planets move around the sun in elliptical motion. And he did that based on Brahe's observation of Mars, which luckily for Kepler is a little bit more elliptical or non-circular than other planets. And this is, we can't really hear it, I don't think, because our, our, we're having some video problems. But that was Kepler describing one of his laws of motion that said that the area a planet sweeps out as it moves around the sun, it covers equal area in equal time, which is kind of an interesting point. Okay, who's this guy? Galileo. Here's Galileo. Galileo proved the motion of bodies in space because he built a telescope, observed moons around Jupiter, and they followed Kepler's laws. So Galileo was a, was a big guy, and he was followed by probably the most brilliant uh, physicist of his time, a brilliant Englishman who was also known for having an incredible head of hair. Anyone know him? Right, Isaac Newton. Anyone here old enough to know who that is? Robert Plant, very good. Okay, now this is Isaac Newton, not Robert Plant. And Newton came up with not only the universal law of gravitation, but his three laws of motion. That bodies at rest stay at rest unless act upon by an outside force. That force is equal to the time rate of change in momentum. And that there we have equal and opposite reactions. Okay. I'm contractually required to put equations on the uh, slideshow tonight, but this is basically showing if I've got an orbit around the Earth, that I've got a set of forces that act on my satellite in that orbit, and I can write equations that are based on Newton's laws that are going to describe how things move in space. We will not solve this equation tonight. Well, we will show you the solution. You can find it, how it's derived here. But the cool thing is, the equation to this, the solution to this equation is, tells us that anything in space that's acted upon by gravity of another body moves in what we call conical motion or conical sections. Okay, and I gotta play this one because it's fun. So, let's see. Come on, let's go. Not working. Let's see. Oh, well. Looks like my conic sections aren't working. Oh, there we go. Okay, so every shape you see there as the plane moves through my cones are orbits we can, that are possible in space. 
And if I go back to my example, we see a circle. Okay, the red is a nice circular orbit. And if I'm orbiting around the Earth in a nice circle, and now I add a little bit of energy, let's say after I go around, at one point I fire a rocket for an instant, and it adds a little bit more energy. Well, then if I do that, my circle becomes an ellipse. Oops. Okay, and if I add a little bit more energy and a little bit more energy, I can escape the Earth's gravity on what we call a parabola. And if I add even more and more energy, I can escape the Earth and actually go somewhere. So when Artemis launches its space, its um, command module to the moon, it is actually escaping Earth's gravity and going to the moon, and that trajectory is called a hyperbola. Okay, so there's our additional energy. And if we go to Mars, if we go to one of the other planets, what we're doing is when we leave the Earth, we're leaving the Earth on a hyperbola or a hyperbolic trajectory. And when we do that, we have to be moving at least 25,000 miles an hour to have enough energy to leave the Earth's gravity. Okay. So we can get ourselves into orbit. And there's lots of different orbits out there. How do we choose an orbit that accomplishes the missions we need it to do? Well, choosing orbits is, in some ways, is a lot like choosing seats at a football stadium. If I'm going to be down in the front row here, I might be able to see the players' faces and numbers and see what goes on at the beginning of the game, and I can hear the noises, but if there's a long play down the length of the field or a punt or a kick, I probably won't see the whole play. On the other hand, if I'm up in nosebleed land, I might not hear much, and I might not see individual names on the back of the jerseys, but I can see the whole play unfold. And the same is true about choosing an orbit. The higher I am in orbit, if I'm looking down at the Earth, the more of the Earth I can see, but the further away I am and the bigger my telescope needs to be to see what's going on. So what are some of the things I ch that are going to help me decide what my orbit is going to look like? And let's see if I can get, get this one to work. Let's see. Oh. Okay, well, one thing is the altitude. And so if I put up satellites in different altitudes, and this is uh, projections of satellites going around the Earth, the satellite that is in the yellow is up higher, and if it's up higher, it's going slower. Because think about it this way, it's high enough up that it can be going slower and still fall around the Earth. And the higher up it is, the weaker the Earth's gravitational pull is. So one of the things I'm going to try to decide in my orbit is, how high do I want to be up? Now, the higher I am up, the fewer times around the Earth I'm going to go, too each day. So I've got to decide on the altitude. And here's some views of different, alt, uh, different orbits. Some that take only two hours to go around the Earth. By the way, the space station goes around the Earth every 90 minutes at that speed. So two hours is a pretty low orbit. 
four hours is actually a pretty high orbit. A 12-hour orbit goes around the Earth twice a day. And a GPS satellite is in a 12-hour orbit. And then we've got other satellites that are in 24-hour orbits. And sometimes they just look like they are standing still because they're rotating at the same speed as the Earth. I can also change the angle of my orbit around the Earth. So, let's see. Let's make this. Okay, didn't work. There we go. This is eccentricity. My orbit can be different shapes, too. And when it's moving, when it's very low over the Earth, it's moving very fast. When it's very high, it's moving very slowly. So I can choose different eccentricity. I can choose different inclination. Let me get inclination going here. Okay. I can have my orbit go over the poles or stay over the equator. And I can choose different inclinations. The point here is that my orbit always has to cross the equator and it always has to go as far north as it goes south. So I can choose, I can choose how far north I go. The orbit in red will never be able to take pictures of the United States because it just doesn't cover it. There's eccentricity. So all these things go together to help us choose different orbits. And we, we talk about them. If you want to use cool uh, astral words, we say most of our low satellites are in LEO orbit, low Earth orbit. And MEO, this is where GPS is. And then we've got highly elliptical orbits that go way out like this. And geosynchronous orbits, those are the orbits of satellites like DirecTV, you know how if you have a DirecTV satellite dish, your satellite dish isn't moving? Because it's pointing at a satellite that relative to the Earth isn't moving either. And it's up there 42,164 kilometers from the center of the Earth, about 22,300 miles in, uh, above the surface of the Earth. So here's our different orbits. We can pick orbits that go around the poles, that go around the equator, that go way north. This is one of my favorites. This is the geosynchronous, and this is a GPS orbit. We can even pick an orbit. This is one of my favorites. It's called sun-synchronous. It's an orbit that actually rotates around the Earth at the same rate the Earth rotates around the sun so that when it goes over the same spot on the Earth every day, it's at the same solar time. So if it goes over at noon one day, it goes over at noon the next day. And we use that for spy satellites so that we can check out shadows and see how things are moving. Seriously. Okay? And then here's our geosync satellites, two different geosynchronous satellites. They have the same... It takes 24 hours to go around the Earth on these. And then this is what GPS looks like. 
We put up GPS, 24 satellites in what we call six different planes, four orbits in each plane, and they managed to cover the Earth. And when they're looking down and broadcasting their symbols, if you use GPS, the reason we've got a constellation like this is so that your GPS is always receiving a signal from at least four satellites. And usually it's about six or seven because it needs six or seven or it needs four satellites to use the signal from the GPS satellites to triangulate where you are and how fast you're moving at any given time. That's what, it, that's what they look like from the Earth. And in space, they look like this. Yeah, a few more beers and an edible, and this looks really fun. I like playing this one. I, for the shows in Denver, they really like this one. With the mushrooms coming out, they'll like it even more. Okay. And here's, this is uh, my, my all-time favorite orbit. Everyone's got a favorite orbit. Uh, this is a Molnia orbit. It means lightning in Russian. And a Molnia orbit, what it does is it's highly elliptical. And uh, the Russians came up with this in the 60s. And uh, it's a pretty cool orbit. Let's see. It goes way up. And if you look in the picture in the lower left, it looks like it's spending a lot of time over the US. And then it sweeps down. Then it flies over Russia. And then it sweeps down. And it comes back to America. So Boris and Natasha can be taking pictures of America. And then 12 hours later, they fly over Russia and download all their photos. But Jack and Jane can do the same thing. There's no way you can you know, make an orbit secret because it's physics. You can't really classify physics. And so we use, all the, we use these orbits all the time. And they're primarily used for, big surprise here, missile warning. So these satellites are also good enough when they're way up here and looking down and seeing almost the whole Earth. They're also good for detecting forest fires and anything that's hot. So we use this in what we call overhead persistent infrared systems, OPIR. Okay, this is what space looks like these days. It's pretty crowded. Um, you can actually see, this is from about 10 years ago. There's lots of things up there. Um, this is the geo belt where all the geosynchronous satellites are. This cotton ball is everything in low Earth orbit going around the Earth. And then these are the uh, satellites in the Molnia and other orbits up high here. And there's about 20,000 pieces up there. Probably if we went down to the size of a baseball, maybe 40 or 50,000 pieces that we track. Okay. So I wanted to catch up. That's kind of the quick story on space. I wanted to provide some time for questions because everyone's got questions about space. Go ahead. The Kessler problem means if I have a bunch of things in space and let's say two satellites hit each other and they form hundreds or thousands of pieces and then you get a chain reaction where those tens of thousands of pieces hit more satellites and create more pieces, then 
it could actually poison an entire orbital belt or orbital altitude. The Chinese kind of tried that in 2007 when they shot down or shot. They don't shoot down because when you shoot it, it just stays up there. It's kind of like peeing in your bathtub um, from an orbital standpoint. Um, now, here's something everyone always asks me. Isn't space crowded? Why aren't things hitting all the time, right? Here's what I want you to think about. Well, first off, what's the biggest reason why things aren't hitting each other all the time? Hmm? Space is big. Space is really big. Here's, an, here's an, a comparison. If Colorado is 0.05% of the Earth's surface, okay, 0.05% of the Earth's surface. So if I'm tracking 20,000 spacecraft in orbit, then that would be the equivalent of having 10 cars in Colorado. 10 cars in Colorado. Now, what are the chances of those 10 cars, any of those 10 cars, even seeing each other, much less hitting each other, unless they're like on an on-ramp at Powers. Right, okay? The chances are pretty slim. Now, realize that of those 10 or 20,000 satellites, now I'm moving in three dimensions also. So these satellites are spread from 300 kilometers above the Earth to four and five and six and thousands of kilometers above the Earth. So it's not just like 10 cars in Colorado. It's like 10 cars in Colorado, and they can move vertically. Now, the bad news is they're moving about 17,000 miles an hour, so when they do hit, it's going to be ugly. But we really haven't had very many impacts. There's only been a couple that have been accidental. Go ahead. Artemis, 1148 this morning, last night. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and that all goes on at Schriever. I mean, right, right here in town. So what happens is the Air Force, the Space Force, sorry, I still slip. Okay. Space Force has sites all around the world with radars and optical sites that are tracking things all the time. It's like air traffic control for space. And we also use civilian and commercial systems to track things in space. And what we're doing is, at any given moment, we're using the equations I showed up there to not only determine where everything is, but predict where it's going to be in the future. And we've got massive computer uh, computational ability to run all of this stuff into the future and ask ourselves, when are two things going to hit? And when we think two things may come close enough to each other to hit, then we start looking closer. Because most of the time, spoiler here, we can't do shit about it because they don't have rockets on them. The ones that have rockets on them, we can move them around a little bit. But most of the stuff we put up in space either only has, like, mouse fart level thrust or 
or no thrust at all. So we kind of just look closer and then close our eyes and hope they don't hit. But good question. Other questions? Are we good? Okay, hey, thanks a lot. Lost Friend Brewing Company Sunday. Um, oh, and um, yeah, if you, uh, you want to hear another uh, space talk sometime, let me know. Okay. Thank you so much, Marty. We loved getting nerdy with you in space. Um, and I don't have my final presentation stuff. Um, well, we can try, see what happens. I'm not sure. Let's see. Ah, uh, yes. Let's see. Let's see if this will work for our parting thoughts. I'm not going to be able to see it. So, this was the final Nerd Night of 2022. But do not fear. January 2023, we will be back. On Wednesday, January 18th, it's the third Wednesday of every month, just like we've been doing it for the past year and a half. Um, and you can continue to follow, like, and share us on Nerd Night COS on uh, the Instagram and Nerd Night Colorado Springs on Facebook. Um, we hope to see you on Monday at Kinship Landing for our Memoirs, True Stories, Unfiltered event. And that, my friends, is all. Thank you very much. Have a great night.